was worried he was getting a little dodgy in the middle part, but then that finale, <laughs> wow. Hello and welcome to Two for One. I'm Claire. I'm David. And in this podcast, we discuss two movies that are based on the same source material. So David, tell us what we're talking about today. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Seven Samurai and The Magnificent Seven. So I think if you're ready, then we can just get started on, on what these movies are about. Let's get into it. So, Seven Samurai tells the story of a small farming village struggling to survive the anarchy and violence of medieval Japan. When a villager overhears that roving bandits plan to once again seize the villagers' crops at harvest, the community decides the only way for the farmers to defend themselves is to hire a group of samurai to protect them and teach them how to protect themselves. The titular Seven Samurai, each of varying skill, experience, and temperament, receive a lackluster welcome in the village, but soon earn the farmers' trust and friendship. The samurai become increasingly entangled in the day-to-day life of the community, and by the time the bandits return, the village is prepared to make its stand. In the end, the village defeats the bandits, but at great cost, the lives of four samurai and several villagers. As the surviving samurai, their work done, prepare to leave, they muse on what they've achieved and what they've sacrificed. The picture was directed in 1954 by Akira Kurosawa, who wrote the screenplay along with Shinobu Hashimoto and Hideo Oguni. The music was composed by Fumio Hayasaka, and starring in the film are Takashi Shimura as Kambei Shimada, the first samurai recruited who serves as the group's leader, Yoshio Inaba as Gorabai Katayama, Kambei's chief lieutenant, Daisuke Kato as Shichiroji, an old friend of Kambai, Seiji Miyaguchi as Kyozo, a quiet but deadly warrior, Minoru Chiaki as Haihachi Hayashida, mostly bringing his charm to the table, Isao Kimura as Katsushiro Okamoto, a young wannabe samurai, and Toshiro Mufune as Kukuchio, a samurai of questionable lineage who nevertheless proves indispensable. Those are the samurai, and some of the notable villagers are played by Yoshio Tsuchiya, Bokuzen Hidari, Yukiko Shimazaki, Kamatari Fujiwara, Keiko Tsushima, and Kokuten Kodo. So uh, that is all the Japanese that I'll be speaking on this podcast. Thanks, David. So our remake, The Magnificent Seven, is actually named for the title under which Seven Samurai was first released in the United States. The Magnificent Seven is an American film made in 1960, directed by John Sturges and with music by Elmer Bernstein, which adapted Kurosawa's film by reimagining it as a Western. Yul Brenner stars as Chris, the leader of the seven gunslingers hired to defend a poor Mexican village. His crew is partly analogs of the team of samurai. Steve McQueen portrays his right-hand man, Ben Tanner. Charles Bronson plays Bernardo O'Reilly, the down-on-his-luck fighter found chopping wood for money. 
And James Coburn plays Brit, this movie's expert, whose precision with knives and guns is unmatched. Other members of the crew present new ideas and motivations, including Brad Dexter's Harry Luck, who is in it for the non-existent fortune, and Robert Vaughn's character Lee, a man on the run whose years of violence have left him traumatized. The final member of our seven manages to combine the original film's admiring novice Katsushiro and the farmer-born wild hothead Kikuchio into one single character, Chico, played by Horst Buckholtz. The Magnificent Seven also gives us more interactions with the leader of the bandits than we saw in Seven Samurai. Calvera, the bandit leader, is played by Eli Wallach. The movie follows many of the same beats as Seven Samurai. In their search for defenders, the villagers witness Yul Brenner's Chris display his toughness and his altruism. When assisted by McQueen's character Vin, they safely transport the body of an American Indian to be buried, despite the threats of local racists. The villagers appeal for Chris's aid, and we get a great series of scenes getting the gang together. When they come to the village, moments of training and bonding are mixed with issues of fear and distrust between gunslinger and farmer that create numerous obstacles. For one, despite her father's efforts, Chico falls for village girl Petra, played by Rosenda Monteros. After a hard-won battle, another villager, Rico Alanez's Sotero, double-crosses the gunslingers by surrendering the village to Calvera's bandits. Yet even despite this betrayal, the Magnificent Seven return to liberate the village of Calvera, resulting in the death of all but three of our heroes. For our bittersweet ending, we are given the same line as we got in Seven Samurai. Only the farmers won. All right, thank you. So... Why don't we uh, get started? What did you want to talk about with these movies? Well, the motion picture teleplay was uh, respectful and exhibited tastefulness and class. Who made you an expert all of a sudden? So I think you mentioned before we got into this podcast that we don't often get a chance to compare two movies that are both considered classics. And I think that's definitely true of both of these and, uh, and should be acknowledged. But despite the fact that these movies are very famous each in their own right, um, and the story might be well known, I think the message is interesting, and I'd actually be interested to know if we are even interpreting it the same way, because it is a pretty complex story and, uh, and has some interesting themes in it. So what do you think is the message of this movie? or these movies that end with that line, that only the farmers won. The old man was right. Only the farmers won. We lost. We always lose. Throughout Seven Samurai, there's sort of this tinge of sadness to... Uh everything that's going on and I think uh, the first samurai that they encounter Kanbei he is already reflective of you know what he's lost and like what a samurai's life is like and what it means to try to be a good person in a country right now that is not really good for good people you know even the villagers they're afraid of samurai because a lot of samurai have gone rogue and either become the bandits that they're afraid of or are just dangers in their own right 
And that's why the villagers like don't want to greet the seven samurai when they show up. And I think a lot of comparisons are made between the people that are protecting the villagers and the people that are taking advantage of the villagers. I don't know how much of a message there is other than being able to reflect on what they're sacrificing to be who they think samurai should be to uphold these values that they, I think, have sworn to uphold, right? And what that actually means. And for the villagers, I'm they just sort of, they're grateful, but their life just moves on, right? But yeah. for the samurai, they sort of have to live with everything that they've sacrificed. And I think that the, the Magnificent Seven goes a little deeper into that theme and explicitly makes the connections between Chris, played by Yul Brenner, as the leader of the Seven, and Calvera, who is actually a character in the Magnificent Seven, so he is allowed to confront the heroes and tell them, like, you're just like me, you know, so we get that explicit comparison. And when he dies, he's asking Yul Brenner's character, why would you do this? Like, why did you come back for the farmers? And he doesn't Mm -hmm. get an answer. Not only because he dies, Yul Brenner literally doesn't answer him. In the end of the movie, when they sort of have that moment where they're wondering who benefited from this, and they say, well, the farmers won, but we lost, we always lose. I think explicitly that movie is calling out the people who do the violence, like even though in this case they needed to hire seven violent people to Mm -hmm. protect them from other violence from the bandits from calvera it's the violence that is doing this to people and the people who practice it are the people that are going to suffer uh so in that sense i think it is explicitly like Mm anti-violence the magnificent seven in a way that i think seven samurai maybe is like in a roundabout way uh magnificent seven makes that more explicit i don't know what do you think i'm with you on everything you're saying, especially that the sadness overarching all of it, which I think is maybe more clear in Seven Samurai, like you're saying, mm-hmm. but I think uh, I think both movies present very clearly a sense of futility mm-hmm. of just yes. you're, we're all living in this world, and I <laughs> I don't know like. I guess it it questions what doing the right thing is Mm -hmm. and like what's the reward for doing the right thing and that there really might not be one, not even like becoming a part of the community you're defending because they don't. Magnificent Seven also ends with the old man of the village saying the farmers always do whatever it's the season for doing and if there was a season for gratitude, maybe they'd show it more. And Mm. that's just so... So disheartening after we've watched this whole movie and like we know what movies with heroes are supposed to be like and they win and then we're all happy and excited because the evil has been stopped. But that's not what these movies are like. It's, you know, you did a thing, but really it's just a moment in the existence of this village, of this farm, and you chose to defend it, but... The cost was, for over half of the, the seven, the cost was their very lives. Mm-hmm. I guess the the idea is, if you're going to do the right thing, like, what is the other option? Yeah, and I think that there are different 
ways of doing the right thing. And to one of the things you said about this medieval period of Japan or any sort of lawless society like we imagine the Old West to be, in a place without law or law and order, that honor culture is the only thing that people have to rely on. And that's explicit in The Magnificent Seven where Chris says this isn't a binding contract, but that's the exact kind of contract that you have to keep, right? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's a little silly, but yeah, that's the idea, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a little silly. I mean, there's a lot of silliness in, in that movie, but I think it is explicitly and maybe even like that line is an example of being too explicit about what it's about, you know, mm-hmm. about how they're trying to do the right thing in a society that doesn't really reward the right thing. And you're, I think you use the word feudal, and it is entirely feudal. Like, what, what have they accomplished? And if they had never heard about this village, nothing would have changed for them. Like, the villagers would be a little poorer, but more people would be alive. And I mean, I get the sense in Seven Samurai that the village would have been wiped out, that they would have actually starved. I mean, because like Kikuchio points out, they have more than they claim they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is another thing. Like, the helpless victims in these movies, the villagers, there's a lot to really not like about them. Mm-hmm. And that adds another layer to, like, this idea of doing the right thing when the person or the people you're defending aren't, you know, totally worthy, aren't like innocents themselves. Mm-hmm. Especially in Seven Samurai, you get a moment where Kikuchio has revealed that they have all of this samurai armor and these weapons and everything because they've been killing any ronin that happened to be passing through. Yeah, or like, I guess there's you know, lots of small wars between, you know, local lords and any samurai that are on the losing side of a battle, they just flee the battle. Mm -hmm. And so they're on their own. And if they go to the wrong village, they could be killed for their weapons and armor and money. Yeah, exactly. And when the seven samurai discover this, one of them goes, I want to kill every villager in this town. Which leads to a great speech from Kikuchio, who's like, look, like, you might feel that way, but think about it from the farmer's perspective and the way that these violent people have affected their lives. To be clear, Kikuchio, even though he has uh, patents of nobility, it is obviously a forgery. And the samurai realize it and sort of call him out in a joking way. And they're not initially going to take him with them, but he follows them to the village. And he's the one that when they get there and nobody shows up, he starts ringing the bell and everybody comes out yelling, Oh, samurai, samurai, help us, save us. And then, you know, he sort of yells at them. Like, oh, you you don't trust samurai when we came here. Like, you know, you think we're all going to rob you and kill you and rape you and stuff. But as soon as you need help, you call for us. Which is really what's happening, like, throughout the whole movie, right? But that's made explicit. And that's when he 
gains the respect of the other samurai who are like, yeah, he's one of us. And the same or a similar thing happens with Chico in uh, that Magnificent Seven, I think. Thank you, amigos, for coming out to greet us. Thank you for letting us see your beautiful faces. Thank you, thank you, you chickens. You come running out like chickens. We ride for days to get to this nothing in the middle of nowhere. We're ready to risk our lives to help you. And you, you hide from us. He doesn't really belong with the group, but then he earns his way into the group by doing doing the same thing. Yeah. And in both cases, like you said, later on it's discovered that they're actually, they were born peasant farmers from villages just like the ones that they're Yeah, both Capuccio and Chico are yeah. farmers originally and have sort of rejected that identity. Yeah. And now they find themselves defending something that they are uniquely positioned to understand mm-hmm. better than any of the actual samurai or gunslingers. And it leads to... I mean, that character is just so important to sort of provide clarity on what the difference is here, what the dynamics are, but also to sort of like translate for both groups, but especially for the samurai slash gunslingers. Like, this is why you can't judge them too harshly, basically. Like, we're not better than them. Yeah. Um, Even though I don't want to be them anymore because I personally have this disdain for the farmer's life. It creates a really, like, sort of complex uh, perspective from that character, but it's so important to to this story. And yeah. I, just think it's, I just think it's so fascinating how it's not an easy message or lack of message, whatever we want to call it. It just it doesn't settle very easily. Yeah, and I, I think that Magnificent Seven is a little more triumphant and it plays like a more traditional adventure movie in some ways but you still would come away with the same message or like you said a muddled message you know why what did we even accomplish like why did we do this and what did this actually cost what did we lose to do this yeah and when I think about that I'm like you know I think that might be a little bit of an Americanizing uh, of the story to have it be a, a triumphant, you know, more hero-focused story. I think we get a lot more distinction between the gunslingers. Like, they're each there for their own reason. And for a lot of them, there is a journey of self-actualizing that they need to do, which mm-hmm. was absent from Seven Samurai. Um, probably most notably with Bernardo O'Reilly, who, in defending the village he acknowledges that he is half Mexican himself and he, you know, feels like he's found a part of himself that mm-hmm. he hadn't been been embracing before. And then also for Lee, uh, the character presumably suffering from PTSD, who in in the final moments needs to decide, am I gonna do what it takes or not? Honestly, I don't know about Lee. He's not my favorite character, <laughs> but... It's uh, just part of what Magnificent Seven yeah. did to make it more like, what are the hero's motivations and why does this specific individual need to do this? Yeah, I think Chris is the one who, you know, as the organizing leader of the group, the principles of the movie become his principles or maybe vice versa. 
but the rest of them I think are on this sort of self-actualization journey where they might join for selfish reasons. I don't think anybody really, aside from Chris, is doing this altruistically. The pay is low, so they know, you know, whatever you get out of this, it's not going to really be the money, right? Mm -hmm. It might be riches that you find out about that are, you know, there's an ancient Aztec mine in the hills or whatever. So silly. Whatever. Who is that? Harry? Yeah. Harry that thinks that. Or, you know, Lee just wants to get out of town because he's in danger, right? He's a wanted man. Yeah. And But he doesn't have the guts to take things on his own. So he's sort of viewing it as a continuation of running away. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the other people there, you know, Chico just wants to prove himself. Bernardo, he sort of, I think, realizes that there's something that he needs to learn about himself. He actually, you know, toward the end of the movie when he does embrace the part of him that is Mexican and he gets really ingratiated with the children of the village who, like, all Mm -hmm. love him and they promise to put flowers on his grave when he falls in combat, (laughs) (laughs) which he he reacts appropriately to that. (laughs) Not thrilled about that prospect, but... uh, he also admonishes the kids who see him and see the seven as virtuous and brave and see their fathers as cowards. And he tells them, actually, your fathers and the people of this village are the people with the real courage. And we're not, we're not any better than them. We're actually like the people more responsible for everything that's bad in this world. We're ashamed to live here. Our fathers are cowards. Don't you ever say that again about your fathers, because they are not cowards. You think I'm brave because I carry a gun? Well, your fathers are much braver because they carry responsibility for you, your brothers, your sisters, and your mothers. While we're on the topic of themes, I think we've been skirting the issue, but... I think race is a theme in Magnificent Seven, which obviously is not a theme in Seven Samurai. And the movie is, I think, pretty much explicitly an anti-racist movie. I mean, Chris and uh, who is... Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen's character's name. Vin, Yeah, Chris and Vin, their save the cat moment, the first time we see them, that reveals what their values are. They volunteer to take the Indian man to the gravesite to be buried because nobody else is willing to do it because the gang that controls the town is threatening to kill anybody that would try to bury a non-white person in the cemetery, right? You know, they go to protect the Mexican town ostensibly for money, but two of the members that go with them are either Mexican or half Mexican. Yeah, I think we've seen this before where... In another movie, the distinctions being between class end up involving race when it takes place yeah, in America. Yeah, I, I had the same thought. I think that's just sort of inevitable because we are a community that is from so many different ethnicities and nationalities that yeah, I had the same we don't thought. have the same sort of historical strict hierarchy. Like, none of the gunslingers are going around being like, here is my, you know, papers showing my lineage that I am part of this gunslinger class because mm-hmm. that just doesn't exist. 
Whereas that is a storyline in Seven Samurai that Kikuchio has stolen a like thirteen year old's <laughs> patents of yeah. of nobility or a samurai hood. I think race is present in the Magnificent Seven. I think uh, for being a movie made in the 1960s, it's not treated the same way that it would be now, but I think it is treated very respectfully, um, especially with Bernardo's storyline. Um, I love his line where he goes, I'm Mexican on one side, Irish on the other, and me in the middle. I think that's probably very resonant for people of, of mixed heritage. And for Chico, who I think in the beginning of the movie when he's trying to prove himself to the gunslingers, I mean, the Mexicans, the the villagers, they go up to the border, like the elder of the village explicitly says, go to the border because that's where you'll find the guns, which I think like you could interpret that in a certain way as all of these violent actors like that is coming from outside of the village and you could interpret that as partially coming from the u.s right but when chico is trying to prove himself to the gunslingers and he's first being tested by chris doesn't one of the mexican villagers like say something to him in spanish and he oh gets yeah really they're upset. trying to get him to calm down and they they go campesino you know just like kind of fella but also farmer depending yeah. on your translation. So he's like, don't call he's me like, don't campesino. don't me, yeah. Yeah, and he um, gets really mad. And then later in the movie, he's sort of embracing that side of him in, like, different ways. And I think first in, like, silly ways, you know, doing, like, the, the thing with the bull and then mm -hmm. dancing with his hat. And then because he, his, uh, his storyline is combining the two from Seven Samurai, he and the woman petra petra fall in love and at the end of the movie he ends up joining the village again that's another uh important distinction when talking about theme here the love story they both have a love story between the novice character and a woman of the village because the villagers have tried to hide all of their women um all of their daughters because they're afraid of them getting raped or getting seduced or running off with the samurai which I guess is like the same thing. It's all the same to them. Right, right. yeah. They, they just don't trust the samurai or the seven. So Chico falls in love with Petra and Katsushiro falls in love with Shino mm -hmm. in both movies. However, in The Magnificent Seven, Chico chooses to stay in the village, thus embracing a part of him that's always been there, that he was born a farmer. Whereas Katsushiro who, remember, is not Kikuchio. So Katsushiro is actually of the samurai class. He stands there looking back at Shino, who has walked past him, not acknowledging him, you know, you know, intentionally not acknowledging him, obviously very aware that he is there, to go work in the fields. And Katsushiro is watching her, and, you know, the two veteran samurai are watching him as they're remarking on how they haven't won but you don't get the sense that katsushiro is gonna stay because i think everything about their yeah. society is preventing that from being his choice ultimately i don't think the movie sides with the class restriction of the time 
I don't think the movie is saying, oh, it's impossible for them to be together, and that's a good thing. But it does follow on the storyline of, of their romance, where she's, you know, the, the people of the village are saying, like, a samurai, and these people can't be together. And that's also at the crux of their romance and why it's wrong for him to pursue this. And I think at the end, it just sort of reinforces the idea that to be a samurai and to do what they've done, like it does involve more sacrifice, I think, than he was willing to admit. At the very end of the movie, they pass each other, and that's right before they sort of look on the graves of everybody that's died from the villagers to the samurai and have that moment where they think about what they what they sacrificed and so i think it it adds a little bit to the futility that yeah. and the sadness i'd say it does that i don't think it comes across really as judgmental of the social structure but just accepting of it as being the situation we're in mm-hmm. you know validating it in a way without approving it because it's heartbreaking to watch that we can't just break out of the confines of this societal structure. And that's something that, you know, does make these movies fundamentally different despite how well they do The Magnificent Seven does recreate the story. Um, But making it an American story just takes that aspect of it away. And I don't know if it's a happier ending that Chico gets to stay with Petra, but it feels like a more complete love story. Yeah. On the other hand, Chico was on his way to fulfilling what he felt was his destiny to become a fighter, just like Yul Brenner's character. And he's going to have to give that up to stay in the village. So he was sort of given two destinies, and we see him yeah. choose one, whereas Katsushiro is going to become the yeah. samurai and presumably a very honorable one having had this experience. So Because he doesn't have a choice. Yeah. He doesn't have a choice, but that's kind of a happy ending. <laughs> happy yeah. ending. But you're right, like Chico, I-, I think that the night before the big battle, they have this talk and, and they're just listing the things that they have to give up to live this lifestyle. Rented rooms you live in, 500. Meals you eat in hash houses, a thousand. Home, none. Wife, none. Kids, None. Prospects zero. Suppose I left anything out? Yeah. Places you're tied down to, none. People with a hold on you, none. Men you step aside for, none. And I think at that point, Chico is still like, sounds good to me, right? But I think he is being presented with that choice, and he's still young enough and hasn't hasn't lived the life that Chris and Vin and Lee and some of these other people have lived, and he can still make that choice. Even at the end of the movie, he rides off with Chris and Vin. Yeah, but he doesn't go with them. He but then they, but then they turn around, and he's like, "Go on!" Like Chris is like, "You're with them. That's just the right thing for him to do," and he's still able to do it because he hasn't totally committed himself and lost himself in that lifestyle. All right, before we get too lost in thinking of these two movies as the same story, uh, we're going to take a minute and go over some of the basic differences, either resulting from the new setting or just subplots that were introduced specifically in one film or the other. So I'll start by mentioning the 
villagers in Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai, first of all, very long movie. Mm. So whereas you start out with four villagers going to town to find samurai, and the four villagers are pretty interchangeable, by the end of the movie, it's pretty clear like who's who, mm-hmm. and they each have different stuff going on. One of them is Shino's father, and he sort of represents the fear of the samurai that a lot of the villagers have. Yohai, who is the best <laughs> villager character, he's just this really expressive guy. I mean, he's got all of these laugh lines when he smiles or when he frowns, and he's always doing one or the other. And his friendship with Kikuchio really cements the bond that formed between some of these characters. A third one whose subplot is unique to this movie is Rikichi. He is hosting the samurai in his home, um, and he's very cagey when they try to joke with him or talk with him about life or you know, his home, and it turns out that his wife had been abducted by the bandits. Can't imagine what it's been like for her as she's just been being held in essentially this harem of women that the bandits have. And at one point, the samurai with Rikichi, because they are really enlisting the villagers as fighters alongside them. So they'll go on some of these missions and they they fight in the village itself during the battles. But they go and when they get there, they light the huts on fire in order to attack the bandits and have them come out so that they can fight them. And the villager sees his wife come out of the burning hut. And when she sees him, aware of the fact that she's been forced to be having sex with all of these bandits that she's been in this situation. She sees her husband who clearly has just been heartbroken and just wants to have her back. And she runs right back into the hut in order to die in the fire. And it's so heartbreaking and such an upsetting storyline. That idea of self-immolation, of women needing to kill themselves if they've been violated in that way. You know, I don't think that would necessarily be equated to uh, the position of women in the Wild West. But it's a pretty impactful storyline and adds to the sadness that you mentioned, David, that sort of cloaks Seven Samurai. Yeah, and Rikichi, like he's, he's on the edge of the building, you know, trying to run in after her Mm -hmm. and the samurai that had come with him one of them is is holding rikichi back and rikichi's just wildly swinging his sword he accidentally hits one of the samurai and injures him and that's how the first samurai heihachi who's the one that you know, you first meet him chopping wood, and he's just, like, making jokes. It's funny, jovial guy, yeah. He's saying he's a great samurai because he knows which way to run away, right? Yeah. Or something like that. Um, and they're basically, they bring him on, and they're like, well, as long as we have him, we'll, he'll keep it light, basically. Yeah, and then he's, and he's the, the first, first one to die. Yeah. And 
it's before even the battle has really started. There's a couple, you know, there's the scouts that show up and a couple skirmishes that happen right at the beginning of the battle. But it's that, you know, shit got real moment and it's a very somber moment. And they don't ever really talk about how Rikichi is the one who did it. You know, he was just like wildly swinging his sword. I thought that the samurai got shot, that he was exposed because he was trying to rescue Rikishi. Oh, was it? He got okay. shot. Yeah. It's basically his fault yeah. for being so uh, yeah. emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not much to say or, like you said, to really <clears throat> take away from it. Um, but it is, it just adds up to a really powerful story of life in this, in this existence with this threat. Yeah. And there's nothing quite like that with magnificent seven i think that there are a couple storylines there's shino and there's rikichi right in seven samurai that are sort of related to the way that the villagers are suspicious of the samurai and Mm -hmm. protective of the women of the village to the point that they hide them and they forcibly cut their hair to make them look less like girls and more like boys right yeah petra didn't cut her hair and petra Right. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm talking about say that. Seven Samurai. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, okay. And then in Magnificent Seven, they have the same underlying plot line where they show up to the village and they're like, and I've been in some towns with some ugly women, you know, but I've never been in a town with no women at all. Like, this is wild. Yeah. And then Chico is doing some Chico thing and finds uh, finds Petra and brings her back to town. Uh, who is she? From our village. You hid them. Sure they hid them. But she won't tell where. They're afraid. She's afraid of me, you, him, all of us. Farmers. The families told them we raped them. Well, we might. In my opinion, though, you might have given us the benefit of the doubt. The gunslingers are like, it's not nice to be called a rapist, but, like, fair enough. You might have given us the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yul Brenner just is a great actor. Yeah. Uh, his voice is so good. Yeah. Um, it definitely comes from his background. It, correct me if I'm wrong. He's Russian originally, but yeah. from like the western side of Russia, so from the, near China. The far eastern side of Russia. Did I say western? Sorry, far eastern side of Russia, um, near China, and then immigrated to the U.S. And so they sort of like hand wave away that he would have this accent while being a cowboy in the they wild west by calling him a cajun mm-hmm. but it's just yeah you know he speaks in an interesting way and a lot of his line delivery is is really great is, i just was, had to mention it with you bringing up that yeah. line well we might <laughs> you might have given us the benefit of the doubt yeah. <laughs> um before we move on uh did you was there any other subplot that you wanted to talk about i mean i think the you know, we've covered the biggest differences, I think, Chico and, like, his subplot, and it ends differently in that he joins the village. But was there anything else? I think the other subplot from Seven Samurai that is worth noting is just the difference in setting being this era of Japan where firearms are just becoming a thing. So everything is sword fighting and spears, I mean, literally spears made out of bamboo. That's what most of the battle involves. 
but the bandits who are threatening the village in Seven Samurai are in possession of three firearms. And that is a big part of the plot that they want to sneak into the bandits camp in order to take these firearms away. But basically like the guns create this threat in the battle that is clearly mm-hmm. on another level than what the samurai's whole history of fighting style has equipped them for. And it is a really heartbreaking moment when the master swordsman, when he gets shot, he is shot by the leader of the bandits who is hiding in a hut, you know, basically just a completely dishonorable way in which to kill someone and attack someone. And he shoots just this man who has proven himself to be just the all-around perfect swordsman, mm-hmm. like perfect idea of what a samurai's fighting ability should be. And he falls in the mud and tosses his sword to the side. And it's a uh, moment that's recreated in Magnificent Seven by Brett, who is the same idea. He's the the expert with uh, guns and knives, but it's it doesn't capture the same essence of what this means because it doesn't have the same moment in history of this new weapon is killing not only this master swordsman, but like the very art of, of his fighting style itself, you know? I didn't think that he was tossing his sword to the side. I thought it was like, if I'm dying, like I can't fight like I normally do, and he almost is using his sword as like a projectile and just throws it, but he can't actually do anything with it. You know, it's like a last-ditch effort. Just throw your sword at the guy. But he was... But he doesn't even toss it towards the guy. He, yeah, he literally does. just tosses it to the side. The uh, guy's in the in the house. Yeah. He's like, he's running toward the house, and he, he gets shot, and then he throws the sword, but he just can't do anything. I don't know. I mean, that's what it looked like to me. But I think it's such an impactful moment, and I understand why Magnificent Seven wanted to recreate it, but it's not the same. I like the character of Brit in Magnificent Seven, but I gotta say, him being able to throw a knife faster than another guy can shoot a pistol is, like, not as impressive as what we see the Master Swordsman do in Seven Samurai. But it was really cool, though. Both of those characters are introduced... Um, where they just kind of stumble upon a scene where somebody's talking shit and challenges that character to, uh, like, a mock duel. So Mm -hmm. in Seven Samurai, they, I think, take bamboo sticks and use them as as swords and charge at each other and put them up against each other's necks. And so the guy goes, oh, it's a tie. And our swordsman is like, nope, I won. And then he's like, all right, well, let's do it for real. And then... He gets got. Whereas in Magnificent Seven, it's just, it's this dipshit who heard that Brit that Brit is really good with a knife, so they do a knife and pistol draw. You know where Brit throws the knife at the same time the other guy draws his pistol, and the guy's like, "I won," and Brit's like, "You're wrong," but like, I'm gonna go back to sleep, and then he keeps like kicking him and shooting at him until finally he's like, all right, let's do it for real. And he just kills him with a knife faster than he can draw his gun, which is pretty cool. I thought both of those 
introductions were really well done, and both of those actors were really good. Yeah, they definitely are well done. And I think that it's really nice that the main character, the leader of the Seven, is not the most skilled fighter. Mm -hmm. That it's clearly this character. And he also... Like like what you said about the guns in Seven Samurai, they're counting the number of bandits and throughout the movie or throughout the battle portion of the movie, which is more or less the second half, they have a list of bandits and they're just crossing them off one by one. So you see everybody that they that they kill. But they're also tracking the three guns that they know about. And at one point, Kyuzo is like do we need one of their guns? Like, would it be helpful if we got one? Okay, I'll just, like, walk off into the darkness and go get one. And then we don't see him for, like, ten minutes, and then he comes back and he's like, I got the gun, and I killed two of them. And yeah. it's just like, what the fuck were he's you doing this so whole time? Badass. Yeah. He's so badass. He's so cool. And it's like, you don't even see it, but you just know he you got him. You know a... it was cool. Yeah. But actually, that that was another point of comparison that I wanted to bring up, which is... In Seven Samurai, uh, Kyuzo, Kyuzo? Mm -hmm. yeah. Kyuzo goes and gets the gun and gets all this admiration, especially from Katsushiro, just, oh, you are amazing, you're incredible, and I always wanted to tell you that. Since we don't have that same sort of need in Magnificent Seven, we don't need to get their guns because literally everybody has mm -hmm. guns, um, we don't have a moment like that with Brit. But what we do have is in both movies, the Chico Kikuchio character decides, I'm going to infiltrate the bandits and do a, you know, stir some shit up. In Seven Samurai, Kikuchio wants to also be Steal admirable, a get a gun, yeah. you know, and earn honor and fame that way. But he leaves his post in order to do that. Mm -hmm. In Magnificent Seven... Chico gets it in his head that since they have a hat from one of the bandits, Chico could put that hat on, well, go down to the bandits and find out are they planning on leaving because we won the initial battle or are they going to retaliate and come back? And he's just out there for information. Yeah, and also Chris kind of sarcastically said, um, Chico kind of storms out of the room and as he's doing so... While you're at it, why don't you ask Calvera what he has in mind for tonight? Yes, do that. And I'll write a song for you myself. Yeah. And then he's and like, he okay. <laughs> so he goes and does it. That's a storyline that Magnificent Seven took from the original story. Okay, we're going to have the Chico Cucuccio character go and do something in the bandit's camp. And that will actually be a scene that we see. But it's very different. Because for Chico... He went and he did something heroic and he got valuable information. And when he came back, people were only grateful and impressed with what he did. Whereas Cucuccio, in trying to act like that expert samurai, he goes, he gets a gun, but he doesn't do it as smoothly. Because when he's coming back to the camp, he's basically got people trailing him you know mm -hmm. he's running for his life essentially to get back to the village but because he left his post in order to do so the attack on the village happens at the exact same time that Kikuchi is coming back and 
his post, the side of the village that he was supposed to defend, you know, you get the scene of him leaving. And he's like, Yohei, like, keep yeah. watch. He's like, I put Yohei in charge. You just see the bandits are coming in on that side and they're killing people. And Kikuchio is literally checking all of the dead people on the ground until he does find Yohei, who's dead, and has that final line, I was watching, right? It's so sad. I mean, it's so sad because that's the funny villager, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the, the funny friendship that happened between these two, like, kooky people. All Kikuchio wanted was to be, you know, a samurai. And all he got for it was criticism for having left his post. But beyond criticism, the real impact of what he did, which is that now his friend is dead. Another samurai died. It was a really bad battle. And that night, Kukuchio stays at the graves all night long. Mm-hmm. And it's... <laughs> yeah, you're right, David. Seven Samurai is a sadder movie, maybe. I think even though, like, the death toll is comparable, I think Seven Samurai really just beats you with the futility of it all, like you said, in a yeah. way that Magnificent Seven, I think, doesn't. Taking the Kikuchio chico comparison because these characters are separated uh chico survives but in seven samurai it's two characters and katsushiro survives and kikuchio dies and right after uh kyuzo's death right where the i think it's one or two guys including the bandit leader are just holed up in one house and they're the only surviving members of the of the bandit group right and they're, they have hostages, and they're shooting from inside the house. And Kyuzo charges forward, and he dies. And then Kikuchio charges in, and he gets shot. But even though he's been shot, he's able to, like, take out the last two. And Yeah, like, literally, his final lunge is to strike his sword into mm-hmm. the bandit leader. And then he falls to the ground and dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, that since Chico is made up of two characters, one of those characters in Seven Samurai gets Chico's ending, you know, of just, I've survived, I'm in love with this village girl, what do I do? Although it's sadder because... Because he can't stay in the village. Whereas the other character who makes up Chico, Kikuchio, yeah, like you said. oh. But I think if you interpret that as, you know, like you said... Kikuchio had been trying to be a real samurai for this whole movie, and they don't let him come with them. Even when they do come with them, they put their banner together, <laughs> and it has the the symbol for the farmers on the bottom, mm-hmm. and then above them, protecting them, is seven symbols representing the seven samurai, except that it's six circles and one triangle. And they're like, what's that triangle at the bottom? And they're like, that's Kikuchio, because he's not really one of us, you know? <laughs> And the whole movie, he's trying to... I don't know to... if it means that. I think they acknowledge that he's different than right. them, but they think of him as part of their group. Right, like, he's yeah. part of the seven, but, like, he is different, right? Mm-hmm. He's not He's not quite the same. Yeah. And for the whole movie, he's trying to show that he is one of them, even though he is still, in some ways, like, a farmer and in a feudal Society will never be nobility. He's trying to show that he can be a samurai like they are. And that's why he goes and does the thing with the gun. And that leads to 
people dying and he has to drink himself into a stupor on top of the graves at the end, you know, at and that mm-hmm. night. And so you could see the final scene where he dies as like finally becoming a samurai and living up to the ideals that he has sort of embraced by, you know, by choosing this lifestyle, right? Absolutely. And so I think that's that's just another distinction where I think it's it's a lot sadder because Chico, you know, he gets the choice and he chooses to stay, right? And Katsushiro doesn't get a choice. He has to go be a samurai. And Kikuchio, like, he has to, at the end, choose. But that choice means that he also dies because of that. Mm-hmm. And he has to make the ultimate sacrifice for what he wants to be. Just another way in which I think it's, it is a lot sadder for him, you know, who's, I think, the main in some ways the main character, but the most interesting character in the movie, and to see him have to die for this is much sadder. Well, those are subplots from Seven Samurai that stand out as being different. I think we've already covered a lot of the subplots in Magnificent Seven, actually. Did you have anything to add about any of the other gunslingers being different? Uh, No, I think that in some ways it's an improvement because... Even if I can never remember all the characters' names, they still are distinct. Like, each of them has a different thing that they want or a different problem that is plaguing them or that they have to overcome. Whereas I think, like, two or three of the samurai aren't really distinct in my mind. Like, how many times have I seen this movie? But I still get two of them confused because they're just like, old experienced samurai that are friends with the main guy it does a good job distinguishing like four or five of the samurai and then there's two or three that are just like and these are also there whereas in magnificent seven i also wonder if it was filmed like in color because they are clearly wearing different you know distinctive outfits and everything Mm. yeah it's in black and white a little more difficult to maybe yeah that is part of it probably and i think in magnificent seven like even though like I said, I don't know all their names. I remember that Lee is his own character and that Bernardo has his storyline and everybody mm-hmm. is introduced in a specific way and then has an arc through the movie and has a specific ending. And I think that's mostly true for Seven Samurai, but not quite as true, right? Yeah. The only other subplot in Magnificent Seven that I think is a really important difference is Sotero selling out the village mm. and then the the gunslinger still deciding to come back, which I think is a weird addition. You know, I kind of like that Calvera is more of a, a character. He actually threatens the village. He goes in, he talks to them, and he tells them, this is what I'm going to do yeah. to you. It's fun to have a real villain. And while we see the yeah. leader of the bandits in Seven Samurai, I don't think he has a name. Yeah, he's he, definitely not. We only see him really from the villager's perspective, or f- I think when Kikuchio or whoever like sees them interacting without being seen, you never get like an inside-the-bandit's perspective, and because they don't actually confront the villagers, we don't get the same scene that we get in Magnificent Seven. But it's tougher for me to support going back to the village if the village has literally surrendered to the bandits Mm -hmm. and said you know what we want we want to just give the bandits what we have we don't want you guys to to keep fighting them 
and to lose more people. And for the gunslingers to then say, no, we had the right plan when we decided to defend them, so we're going to go back in and cause another battle and ultimately win, but, you know, more people end up dying, more villagers end up dying, and that's exactly what Sotero had just tried to prevent happening by surrendering. And I think maybe what the movie didn't do, you know, I've seen it a few times now, so maybe it's just something that I've missed. But I know Sotero, like, he represents one group of villagers that's too scared to go on. And that there's other villagers who did want to keep fighting. But it's not clear to me when they surrender to Calvera that there's that dynamic still. It it feels like the whole village has given up. Yeah, and I think that they try to have those moments like at other times in the movie. Like there's one point where Vin is talking to one of the villagers during the battle Mm -hmm. before all of this. And he's asking him, like, I bet you regret, you know, not just giving them the the food now, right? And he goes, yes and no, you know, and talks about how he has mixed feelings, but he's never felt, like, more proud of himself and of his, of his village than standing up for themselves. So I do think that the movie is doing that at other times, but you're right that in that moment where they let the bandits in, it's sort of like who was this just one person like was this everybody and like if it was everybody we don't really get a chance to interact with anybody after that between the seven and the villagers right i guess bernardo talks to the children he talks to the children and some villagers are essentially being held prisoner Mm -hmm. so those we can assume are the ones who were unhappy about the situation but i just think it's not as clear as it should be and I don't know that having this moment of surrendering added much. It really just added a lot of confusion because then Calvera basically kicks the gunslingers out, gives them back their guns once he's kicked them out and been like, because I didn't kill you, your friends won't kill me, so we're square, goodbye, go away. Well, and it's like, what are you doing? I'll tell you what it added. Okay. It added another confrontation with Calvera. Where, you know, if you're going to have the villain be a character, you have to have at least a couple interactions with them. So we got that, and that's a good scene. Uh, And it added the moment where all is lost, Dark Knight of the Soul. They get kicked out of the village, and they have to talk to each other and debate whether they're going to go back. And ultimately, we know, like, where Chris is going to land. For each of the others, they have to make a choice individually of what they're going to do but by now we've seen all of their character arcs and so it makes more sense that being said i do agree that the actual logic of it the logic of it and the logic of calvera being like i'm not going to kill you because that would cause me more trouble i'm going to like escort you out and then give you your guns back doesn't make any sense at all right but like makes the story feel sloppy and for it to be one of the only key points that is not taken from Seven Samurai yeah. does but it uh, is, make I, it questionable. It is a trade-off, though, yeah. is what I'm saying. And I think it could have been done in a less sloppy way. But there are things that we gain from that. Right? Yeah. And there's no reckoning with Sotero, which makes me mad, too. Does Toward he, the end of the does battle. He die? I don't remember. He doesn't, I don't think he dies, but he does, like, he's hiding out for most of the battle. 
and then he decides that he's going to fight too. Oh, he and does. And so okay. he does join them. Well, okay then. Yeah. I'll accept that. And yeah. I also will acknowledge that I tend to sometimes not pay great attention to fight scenes. <laughs> so I'm not surprised mm-hmm. I missed that. I'll also say on that note that the geography of the fight scene in Seven Samurai, I mean, it's much longer, right? It's mm-hmm. over an hour of the movie is dedicated to a series of skirmishes and then a final battle. But the geography of it, they do a pretty good job of establishing very early on in the movie. We're seeing a map and they're like, okay, well, to the east or whatever yeah. we have the floodplains and then to the north we have the mountains and then the main road is on the... I don't know. I'm making that I up. I don't but... think movies should be afraid to give us maps. I like a map. Yeah, in... maps are dope. Yeah, but it's just, it's very good for establishing... Yeah where we are what are we working with yeah you know and i think that in magnificent seven uh i mean the battle is much shorter there are still phases of it but Mm -hmm. overall it's much quicker it is a much shorter movie so there's less time spent on the battle um but i also think that could have been tighter and like especially in the final scene they just sort of ride in and start this big fight and there's no real plan whereas in seven samurai they're always sticking to the plan even though at the end it sort of falls apart and they have to lose more of those samurai and more villagers than they had accounted for that i think also could have been a little tighter in magnificent seven i know that we really want to get into which film is better because it's going to be a tough choice but before we talk about that let's just both mention two or three moments from each movie that stands out to you as memorable. Everything Yul Brenner says in Magnificent Seven is dope. Yes. And like So many good quotes. And I think we've seen it once before, and then we watched it twice to talk about it for the podcast. We were just talking about, like, did he only do this movie? He was like, I'll only do it if everything I say is dope. Like, even in the first scene with him and um, Steve McQueen... He just has so many, like, great moments, you know? I just want to play, like, a Yul Brenner supercut of, like, cool things that he says, you know? Can we talk about that scene? Because for me, that is one of the most memorable things about Magnificent Seven. It's so good. We haven't even mentioned in Seven Samurai the same sort of save the cat establishing character thing for the leader there. Because I think it's very much overshadowed by... The Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen scene yeah. in Magnificent Seven. So I know we already discussed the plot of it, that they're taking the hearse wagon up to the cemetery. But, but the way the scene is laid out is just a 10 out of 10 across the board. The dialogue in particular, not just what Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen are saying, but all of the people of that little town. You know, I'll bury anybody for $20. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just... I treat everybody the same as a potential future customer. (laughs) It's so good, right? And then everything that Yul Brenner is doing, you're right, David, is just so badass. So cool. The way that he just lights his cigar off of his boot or off of the, the, I don't remember. He strikes it off of his boot, right? Yeah, the leather, yeah. (laughs) And he's smoking the cigar. They're getting shot at by racists up in the, like, second story window yeah and uh what was it steve mcqueen says to him i know i'm using the actors names because i'm having trouble remembering vin and chris right vin goes uh did you get elected 
And Field Brenner goes, I got nominated real good because yeah. his cigar had gotten Because shot. they shot his cigar and he has to relight it. It's just, what, what are... What is this dialogue? It's just it's so, so ridiculous. It's so cool, but it it's is. also like ridiculous, yeah. And it's a great introduction to Chico too, because in addition to the villagers watching this happen, Chico's watching it happen, and he's so excited. <laughs> he's just like basically trying to run after the hearse, but in such an animated way that mm-hmm. Steve McQueen's like, we might have trouble on the left. <laughs> Neil Brenner looks back, <laughs> and Chico just. Does this little hand wavy thing of just like no, I'm, I'm cool, cool. I'm yeah. cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm just excited to be here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a very fun, cool scene, mm-hmm. and I think also the story itself that they would, for no reward, want to do what was right. Right. Um, for someone who was literally just found by the side of the road, they've never met this people. person. Yeah, they've never met him. They just the Wells Fargo representative had like found this body on the side of the road or something and yul brenner just overheard this conflict that nobody would take him up to the cemetery like i think it's a pretty perfect save the cat moment pretty yeah. perfect character introduction yeah and the whole scene in the border town where you know the the mexicans are they they see what chris did and so they tell him what they're coming to town to do and what their problems are and the scene where they try to convince him to join them and at first he's like well i won't i don't really need to help you i'll help you buy guns or that's what they want and he's like well why don't you hire men so he's going to help them buy men but he's not going to come with them and then he's going to come with them but recruiting everybody and hanging out for a while it's pretty fun. And, like, there's another... There's a bunch more, like, ridiculous things where they go to the tavern or the saloon or whatever, and some guy walks in, like, real, you know, tough-looking guy with a grizzled face and scars all over, and uh, one of the Mexicans is like, what about that guy? Look at the scars on his face. And then another Mexican is like, we want the guy who gave him those scars. And Chris is like, yeah, that's what's up. You know? Yeah, you're it's learning. Just, it's just so ridiculous, but it's like everything that they're doing is like, you know, just so over the top, like, tough guy cool, you yeah, know? Yeah, it is. That it's it's fun, right? Yeah, I think uh, the one line that I would highlight from Yul Brenner first meeting the villagers is when they explain what they're offering for the job and it's so measly but they just go it's everything that we have we could feed you every day and we have this what's that we can sell this for gold everything we own everything of value in the village i've been offered a lot for my work but never everything Mm-hmm. That's such a good line. You know, yeah. there's some really good lines in this movie. And it's also echoed when they talk to uh, Bernardo when they're like, you're the guy behind uh, this one job. And he's like, yep, they paid me 800 for that. And they're like, and you did this other thing? And he's like, they paid me 600 for that one. Well, the job we're talking about is $20. No. <laughs> and they walk away. And then he's like, $20? Right now, that's a lot. None of these people have anything, so it's all, like, kind of fake value. Like, you know, the pay for a job doesn't last them any amount of time. It's all just, like, a marker of what they think they're worth, right? But they're also taking, like, their own value of what they're worth 
in terms of what they do and like the moral code they uphold. So they're all doing that calculation in their head when they hear the job only pays $20. I think Seven Samurai is full of like cool moments and I thought uh, Horst Buchholz is, is very good. Um, Wait, you mean Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai? Sorry, did I say? Yeah. <laughs> you said Seven Samurai. Magnificent. I just figure we should finish rounding out Magnificent Seven, and yeah, Horst Buchholz is really good. Uh, he's got a lot of moments. Like as soon as he's by himself, he just starts being like doing goofy things. Like uh, he sees a bull and he starts, you know, bullfighting. He's a matador for yeah. no reason, right? <laughs> because he thinks he's alone. I think it takes a certain amount of charisma to pull off like. A scene that doesn't advance the plot at all where you're just being silly and it's still fun. Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen are great. James Coburn is really good. He's the knife thrower, right? Mm -hmm. And Charles Bronson plays Bernardo. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Bernardo is such a good character. Yeah. He stands out to me above all the other, Mm -hmm. the others of the Magnificent Seven. And the kids are really cute. Yeah, they are. And his death, like, he dies right in front of those kids who've just been following him around. And they are, they caused his death, too. Just like with Heihachi. He's, like, hiding behind a wall, I think, something like that. And the kids run up because it's their responsibility to take care of him, which, like, isn't a real responsibility, and now is not the time. But they run up, and he... Like, starts, he's trying to protect them by hiding them, but in doing so, he gets shot. Oh. I, I haven't really thought to blame the kids for his death, but... Yeah, well, I think it's right. the same thing with, with Haihachi, right? Where, yeah. you know, it's not anybody's fault, like, and it's not worth it to blame anybody, but, like, they both die protecting the people that they're there to protect, right? Yeah, and I think as far as the perspective goes for each of the uh the gunslingers like we've said they're all there for their own reasons and they're all learning their own lessons by doing it and just bernardo really he has such an honorable point of view like his whole speech about courage to the kids yeah good guy uh also the music of magnificent seven is really good oh really good iconic music elmer bernstein yeah the heroes have a theme that is really, you know, uplifting and powerful and uh, memorable. And the uh, villains have another theme that is really memorable. And so every time the bandits ride in, it's like, dun, 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 you know, and like you hear it again and again. Um, the music's really good. Seven Samurai, I would say, just as iconic, you know, in terms of its moments. And we sort of mentioned this. I think it's the first real use of a couple different tropes, like the getting the team together thing. Yes. Which we've talked about on the podcast before with, like, Ocean's Eleven. And that's obviously one of our favorite tropes. Mm-hmm. It's just so fun. It's so much fun. Who doesn't love being introduced to a cast of characters? Yeah, and, like, if you have a small enough group that, you know, that, that you can play their contrasts and it can be, like, really a fun part of the movie, uh, I think Seven Samurai sort of invented that. And 
the number seven, I think, is a little magical because it's on the low side of, like, the number of characters that we can remember. Yeah. So, like, most people can be like, oh, yeah, that's that guy, that's that guy, right? Uh, and I think that's been copied a lot. You know, Magnificent Seven and then the remake and then, what, A Bug's Life and all these things that sort of pay homage to Seven Samurai. I think part of it is because, because it's fun getting the team together. And then if you're going to do that, then it's like, then let's just remake Seven Samurai because everything about it is perfect. You know, having having a group of, you know, a disparate crew that is there for different reasons and some of them are more noble than others. Having to go through something that is going to cause changes in some or all of, of the members of the group. It's a pretty cool story. And it's, you know, there's a reason that I think it's been done so many times, but it's sort of invented here in Seven Samurai. Yeah. I love the getting the gang together in Seven Samurai. And I forget that I also love the getting the gang together in Magnificent Seven. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just because I'm so aware that Seven Samurai essentially and we've created seen, this. We've seen Seven Samurai more times. I Maybe think. a few more. Yeah. yeah. The other part of Seven Samurai that obviously stands out is Toshiro Mufune. Mm -hmm. Uh, who plays Kukuchio. I mean, he's just, he is an incredible actor. If Mm -hmm. you've seen him in other things as well, like Rashomon, he is able to jump out of the screen with his wild energy Mm -hmm. that he brings to to Kukuchio. Like, honestly, you are watching him in some of these scenes where he'll just be, like, kicking at the dirt or, like, communicating physically rather than verbally. Mm-hmm. And you're almost like, were you a feral child? Like, what? Yeah. Like, but he There's might have something been feral about Because he starts crying at some point when he's rescuing this baby who's just been left without a father. And he goes, that was me. Like, this is what happened to me. And it's honestly a small moment in the overarching story of the movie. But it informs his character a lot that he knows that he's a farmer. But at one point he says, I don't even know my name. Can you give me a name? Mm-hmm. And she's like, where did you come from? You're just this being, <laughs> like this force of nature that wants to be a samurai. But, you know, at, at moments you're barely acting human. It's yeah, but just a great character he's obviously a great actor and i think he's uh he's in like like you said all these kurosawa movies to the point that he's basically his muse like what you're saying about the physical acting it fits in so well with like kurosawa's aesthetic and you know if you watch seven samurai you like feel like the dust and like the rain and the mud and everything they're all just running around in you know these villages and on these dirt roads and if one of them hits the other one on the back, like a puff of dirt, like yeah. you know, goes up. And um, I think I don't know if it's in this movie, but uh, Kurosawa, like for one of his movies, he dyed the water. He used like ink to dye the water for like a rain scene. It might have been in Rashomon mm. that I'm thinking of. But he has like his idea of the physical environment, especially outdoors. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Mifune is just so charismatic, but also a little bit like wild that he just fits in perfectly with that. He does. And I think it's part of what makes Seven Samurai such an accessible foreign film for people who don't speak Japanese. 
yeah, you don't you don't need to know what Mifune is saying half the time to just get this sense of how he's interacting with with his environment and the people around him. Yeah. That's so good. I also think that um Haihachi, played by Minoru Chiaki, like I said, he's really just bringing charm to the table because mm-hmm. he is self-admittedly not very brave or skilled. So you, I think you really have to buy his charm, and I think he sells it pretty well. What he's doing physically in the first scene where they roll up on him and he's just chopping wood, you know, the way he has his sword out, and then he sees someone come <laughs> up behind him and he just casually moves his sword to the other side of himself and keeps chopping the wood, and then he's just making, like, self-deprecating jokes. Like, I think you really have to buy that. You have to buy his performance. I mean, if we're just talking about performances now, I think that Kanbei the leader of the group, uh, played by Takashi Shimara, you also really have to buy his performance. And he needs to have like the force of personality, much like Yul Brenner has as Chris, where he is the moral core of the group. Like mm-hmm. Everybody else is on their own journey. I don't think that Chris or Kumbai really has a character arc in the same way. Like, they you know, sort you of... You get this, uh, this sense of permanence, especially yeah. at the end when... Both of them say we will always lose. Yeah, it's just nothing of like inevitability. Yeah. you know that like I know how this is gonna go. Like I can't be presented with this situation and, and not, not participate. Yeah, right. And I think what you're saying about both actors, mm-hmm. they they were both so good for their role. Yeah. yeah, and you know, not that they're humorless. Like both of them, I think, are in good spirits and appreciate everybody's company and what everybody else brings to the table and show like leadership qualities but also are willing to joke around and you know meet people where they are they're both people people right yeah another thing that seven samurai i didn't i hadn't really put this together but they also kind of invented the uh you know introducing a hero with like something that's totally not relevant to the actual plot but you're talking about saving the cat yeah sort of like I think this movie might have invented saving the cat. Which is interesting because saving the cat is a term that comes from alien. Well, I'm not sure about that. What? She literally saves a cat and that establishes what we know about her character. To any listener who does not know what saving the cat is, it's just that the hero needs to do something outside of the context of the plot that lets us know this is a hero or like this is what this person's moral code is yeah, or, or, or what they're about. If they're not a hero, you know, yeah, show us like who they are with one thing that they're doing um, and mm-hmm. then that establishes a really quick baseline for who they are. When the villagers go to the nearest town to find samurai, they stumble upon like a weird situation developing where this guy has taken a child hostage and then they see this samurai just go to the creek and cut off his top knot and put on a monk's robes. And so he goes to the place where the guy is holding the kid hostage and presents himself as a monk and sneaks in and rescues the kid. Right? I mean, it's pretty badass because in order to pull it off, he has to leave his sword behind. Mm-hmm. So he goes into this hostage situation and, you know gets the guy off his guard enough in order to rush in, disarm him, kill the guy with his own sword, Without and rescue the, the child. Yeah. Which sounds badass, but I will say, since a lot of it happens inside the hut, and the then the thief or the, the hostage taker guy just runs out 
and dies in the field, you don't really get the action. You mm-hmm. just get the, you know, the, the, setup. the calculations involved. Yeah. Like, that's what you're meant to be impressed with, not the physically overpowering him, really. So, yeah, like I said earlier, the, the scene with the hearse and all of that witty dialogue and, and the fact that Chris would not back down, I think I like the Save the Cat and Magnificent Seven better. Yeah, but it, I do like that it, I think it does a good job of establishing the character and like why the villagers would want to hire him or yeah, at least it like really does. talk to him first. But it also, because he cuts his hair to look like a monk, he looks like a monk for the rest of the movie. And that messes with your head, because that's now your perception of yeah. him, right? Yeah. But it's it's good because, for one thing, it marks him as separate from mm-hmm. the other samurai in a way, because he is their leader. And also he's, I think he's their moral leader, right? Yeah. It's not even, like, subliminal, but, like, the just background visual of him always looking sort of like half monk, half samurai, right? And he's constantly rubbing his his newly shaved head, you know, when he's deep yeah. in thought. And uh, just it sets him apart visually and I think gives the actor a little bit more time or a little bit more space to define the character. It does a good job. But I agree that I think nothing nothing beats the the hearse ride. Thoughts on which one you think is better? In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. I am inclined to say Seven Samurai, and I think I'm going to stick with it. I've never considered myself a fan of westerns, but... The Magnificent Seven is such a great movie. And there's there are definitely things that I love about Magnificent Seven that Seven Samurai doesn't do. But I just feel like Seven Samurai in my head has this level of respect that I give it that is above Magnificent Seven. And it might be because it's the original. So many of these tropes I just bring back to Seven Samurai. And I feel like grateful to Seven Samurai for having established that. I mean, what do you think? Well, I do think that there are things that Magnificent Seven gives you that Seven Samurai doesn't, right? And we talked about some of them with the Save the Cat moment for Chris and Vin. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I think just distinguishing a little bit better between some of the characters, some of the titular Magnificent the Seven. Yeah. yeah. You're right that Seven Samurai invented all these tropes and all these, you know, shots that are so iconic and, you know, has, like, really powerful, I think, more powerful moments, you know, like when Heihachi dies and he is the first samurai to die and you see everybody mourning and then Kikuchio goes and grabs the banner and plants it on the top of, uh, on the, the house in the village which Hihachi had made the banner, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of like an act of defiance, you know? Yeah. And in Magnificent Seven, you don't get those same moments because everybody that dies, dies within a few minutes of each other. Yeah, they, they really just drop like flies in the last yeah. ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. It's, again, it sort of comes back to, like, the length of the movie. Mm-hmm. That I think Seven Samurai is too long, but Magnificent Seven also... It's like perfectly paced until the last half hour, and then 
plot points they get kind of sloppy and then people dying at the end of the movie it doesn't really like land and i think every samurai death really lands because they sort of let it linger right yeah you you really feel each one yeah i mean there is such a strong sense of mourning as soon as the battles start Mm -hmm. that we've lost people it's it's like an ongoing sense of mourning because once i think Hihachi dies you realize every second that we fight like we're risking such huge loss and to know that you know this is not going to be one battle this isn't going to be a five minute scene at the end of the movie this is going to be like a grind and the inevitability that they're going to lose more people over the course of the movie I mean, that's how we're seeing it. But for them, I think they're settling in to what some of them already know, that this is not going to be like a glorious victory, right? That Mm -hmm. they've already lost people, and to win the battle, they're going to have to lose more. Yeah. And so that doesn't really hit you in Magnificent Seven, which goes back to what we were saying, that it's, I think, a sadder movie in some ways. And maybe if we had lost some of the Magnificent Seven in the earlier battles, then we would maybe have more compassion for the villagers who want to give up Mm -hmm. and not keep fighting. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say Seven Samurai. Oh, you would? Okay, I thought you were going to challenge me. What can I tell you, kid? You're right. When you're right, you're right. You're right. I think that they're both such great movies that, like, it's pointless to choose between them to an extent pointless to choose between them that's what we do (laughs) yeah but like if you were gonna recommend i mean so we're saying like if you're gonna recommend one of these movies i would just say like watch both of them you know honestly david that's the question that that guided my final thinking was what would i be more excited to show someone and i think i'd be more excited to show them seven samurai but we but like you can't sit someone down and try to make them watch seven samurai because it's like a four-hour movie yeah, they have to be down for it, but... But I, I don't think that you can just, like, totally discount the fact that it's Really so long. long? Yeah. There's an intermission. <laughs> yeah, there's an intermission. It is such an experience to watch Seven Samurai, though. But I would say watch both of them, though. I would highly recommend both of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess I see what you're saying, that Magnificent Seven might be more accessible, too people who don't want to sit down for a four-hour movie. Well, let's talk for a moment if we're getting into our remake discussion. You and I have seen the Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, what was that, 2016? Um, uh, yeah, it's somewhere, yeah, you know, time stopped. We saw it. And we did see it. What I remember of that movie is the... Am I going to get this name right? Gatling gun? Yeah, that's the basically thing. all I remember. Yeah, all I, all I remember is that being pulled out at the end, which brings me back to what I said about Seven Samurai, the the guns providing this new element yeah. of battle. And maybe they were trying to capture yeah. that, of just there is a threat here that we are not prepared for with our pistol shooting you yeah. know, experience. Yeah. But... I hadn't I just, thought of that. I think you're probably right that that's... What is it? Antoine Fuqua? I think that's probably what, what they were going for with with the Gatling gun. Like to, to bring back that element that Magnificent Seven had left out? Yeah, that like they're literally outgunned and they don't really have the means to stand against like this new form of violence and their way of life is 
coming to an end. Yeah. But unfortunately, it didn't land like that for me, at it least. Didn't. It felt like a little bit mix of, look at this cool gun, and also, like, ultra-violence, and also, like, yeah. uh, and also this is not going to be a battle anymore because you literally can't battle this gun. I don't know. Also, too much, like, The Last Samurai, right? Because that ends with all the samurai being mowed down by Gatling guns. Oh, the Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if the intention was to, you know, as you're saying, to introduce, like, this new weapon that symbolizes something else, that should have been apparent just from the movie, not by being like, well, are they taking this idea from the Seven Samurai and incorporating it into this new movie in a different way? Right? Like, you shouldn't need that context, because if that's one of the themes, then that should just be apparent just by watching that. Right. Do you have thoughts on if this was remade, which it's already a remake, they already remade the remake, they made A Bug's (laughs) Life, they did a Mighty Max episode. I love A Bug's Life. (laughs) Well, I don't love A Bug's Life. I've got the most scathingly brilliant idea. Would you want to put it in a particular setting, since obviously it is a story that can be translated to a new setting? Or would you want to take one of these movies and just fix uh, any mistakes or any places where you feel it falls short? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be the height of hubris to think that you could make a better version of, of these movies. And especially yet, because John Sturge has made the Magnificent right. Seven. Well, I was about to say, so good. especially because there were already two great versions of this story with like different settings, but you know, like I can't think of a setting that would be like, oh, let's do the Magnificent Seven. I always say this, but in space, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like that wouldn't be cool. Like I don't know, you know, even though Star Wars is basically Kurosawa in space, it would right? absolutely be cool. The lawlessness of being okay. In- you could you know, do like a Star space. Wars yeah. Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Absolutely. That would be cool. Why are you throwing that idea away? I just don't think it would be better than Seven Samurai or Magnificent Seven. It's like Firefly, you know? Yeah. People love the like final frontier of space. But I think that like Star Wars already took like so many tropes from like Kurosawa in general, but also Seven Samurai and like Westerns. That, like, those tropes have already been incorporated into Star Wars, so now we don't necessarily need, like, a Star Wars Magnificent Seven. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? You wouldn't really be doing anything new. Like, you could do literally the plot of Magnificent Seven, all the, like, beats and all the, like, tropes and stuff. Those are already there in Star Wars, so it wouldn't even feel unique for a Star Wars movie. It would, like, fit in really well, but, like, it doesn't really have, like, a reason to exist, you know? However, there are plenty of Star Wars movies that don't have a reason to exist, so at least giving them a good framework and good ideas to work off of might be the ticket to I would finally guess, make a good one. Honestly, I would guess that some of the Star Wars TV show plots... Like, I would guess that Mandalorian has done, like, a Seven Samurai thing. Even though I watched Mandalorian, or I watched some of it, I don't remember them doing that, but I would guess that it's been done in the Star Wars universe at some point. But... The point being that, no, I don't think you can do anything better than those. I do think you could go back. I think you could trim some of Seven Samurai. Like, if you could create, like, a three-hour cut. What would you get rid of? I don't know if I would get rid of, like, anything in particular, but maybe, like, just trim some of the scenes that go on too long. Some of the conversations are pretty redundant, or I don't know. I don't know. 
know that they are. I think it lets things take their time, but I don't think there's anything obvious to trim because the first moment, the middle moment, the final moment are all necessary. Like they're all well thought out, but it's just that we've taken time to move through them. So unless you're like editing seconds out. Yeah, that's what I would do. I would be like, I don't need to have Manzo chase Shino around the village for like 10 minutes. We could have like two minutes of that. It is a long scene when they've just had sex. Manzo finds his daughter and gets so mad and essentially starts flogging her in the middle of the village. And all the villagers come out and the samurai are trying to figure out what's going on. And in the spirit of the seven samurai, nothing gets resolved yeah. It just starts raining. There's and a lot everybody of leaves. Hmm. Yeah, but and then it's, that's it. But it'd be hard to trim that because it's just sort of letting us all process that like this has happened and this is how everyone's reacting, and there's nothing. I don't to think be done. we need a ton of time to like process stuff. Like you know? we're not going to, like, convince Manzo that his patriarchal ideas are wrong in this moment <laughs> you know like we're not going to solve the inherent problem here even yeah. though like it is nice that uh one of the samurai is like oh no it's not one of the samurai it's rikichi who this is after his wife has died he goes at least they love each other yeah. and she wasn't taken by bandits oh my god that's low blow low blow heartbreaking but i was actually thinking of the scene where he's chasing her around to cut her hair oh okay yeah you can cut that 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 last which is also a really long scene (laughs) but that's what i'm saying like i feel like you know you do like a minute half a minute here or there you know it would move a lot quicker okay i'm sure people would be like up in arms if you actually took his movie and did that but i think that you could make that movie a little a little slimmer and i think we already know what we would fix in magnificent seven you could make the ending a little cleaner because it's just it doesn't make a ton of sense why uh calvera would let them live and give them their guns back oh my goodness yes and it's unclear like what exactly happened uh you know even though that could be a good moment for chico to prove himself rather than him infiltrating the camp earlier on to find out what was going on have brett do that He's the experienced fighter. He's the guy who's supposed to be impressing us. He can find stuff out, report back. But then once they've been kicked out, Calvero doesn't give them their guns back. But Chico takes this opportunity to prove himself, and this time he's the one infiltrating, right? Maybe. Just an idea. Just an idea. I think when we're talking about pacing here, I know Seven Samurai takes forever, but Magnificent Seven could have let that last half hour simmer more yeah you could it's it's pretty close to two hours right and i think you could add another half hour to that movie without it feeling really long like it's dragging and especially like if you if you let all the beats of the the battle lord of the rings like helm's deep we talk about all the time Mm -hmm. both the geography and how you really understand it but also Every battle. every beat of the battle, and also you know I think taking the the like 
use of rain is like so kurosawa mm-hmm. you know just like i feel like there's so many like minor tropes that are, like we don't even think about the way the rain and the mud interact with the battle in that that is just mm-hmm. taken directly from seven samurai and other kurosawa movies but that's neither here nor there but i think that you know looking at the two towers and helms deep as like a template for like what a battle should be and like going through phases seven samurai follows pretty closely to that like there are phases of the battle magnificent seven has those phases but they happen so quickly that you don't process them especially at the very end right and you're saying like right the very end is basically just a free-for-all where they're dropping like flies there's no real like anchor to that scene that could be improved with like a little more time like let each beat play out you know let each part of the battle play itself out before we move on and instead it just it's just a little bit chaotic yeah but i think it would be very difficult to make a better movie and i do think that what fuqua did and probably what most remakes are doing is not trying to make characters one-to-one reinvent this in such a way that it'll be something new you're not saying well did they do chris better than the magnificent seven because then the answer is going to be like no but you there are some characters that are so important. I mean, we already talked about how Chico and Cacuccio's experience of having been born as a farmer is so essential to telling this story. And the expert swordsman slash gunman is such yeah. an important character to have, too. Like, I just feel like you can't get rid of those for the sake of telling a new story. If you're telling the Magnificent Seven those characters are what make the story what it is. So don't try. (laughs) Well, I've had some thought about what settings might work. In the past, I know I've fully supported your idea that space is a stupid idea, but honestly, I think I think I didn't say space was a stupid idea. I just don't think that, like... I don't think that there's a setting that would really add anything that hasn't been done. When I think of space, that is the Wild West idea of the magnificent seven that like there's this lawlessness and that's why we are going to need these like renegade fighters to help us out but that was a change in magnificent seven from seven samurai where society was sort of falling apart in seven samurai but there was still this very stratified idea of society and that's why Katsushiro doesn't get Chiko's ending. He doesn't get to stay in the village, right? Because he literally can't within the society that he's living in. And the dynamics between the samurai and the villagers are that way because of class differences as much as anything else. Whereas in Magnificent Seven, it's just like lifestyle differences, really. And so I think it's a story that could be worth exploring in other highly stratified societies. I think you could take another feudal example and set it in feudal Europe if you wanted to and get an interesting sense of the dynamics of that society. I think it's unfortunate and maybe unfair that when we think of highly stratified societies, my mind at least goes to South Asia and the caste system. Makes me wonder if there's been a Bollywood remake of this maybe, but I think that's another society that could be interesting because when you have strict classes and strict levels in society it's not always going to be one-to-one the same so the differences in class dynamics in those situations 
would not necessarily be the same as Seven Samurai, but could help capture that sense of distrust between the people who are in need and the people that they're asking for help. So I think it's a pretty universal story that would be told differently depending on, on those dynamics. And I think it'd be interesting if you find a moment in history and a place that is experiencing that level of somewhat lawlessness where they're gonna need to essentially ask mercenaries for help, um, but that those mercenaries are gonna be of a different class than them. I think there's plenty of options to choose from, but the dynamics of that particular culture and society can make for an interesting story and a different story than what we've seen before. So I think take this structure, find someone who knows another setting that it works in and see what's what the story becomes under that person. All right, can I just... I, I pulled up the Wikipedia part on this movie about remakes. Okay. So can I just tell you, like, some of the stuff that they've actually done? Sure. They did a movie called Battle Beyond the Stars, which was marketed as Magnificent Seven in Outer Space. Oh, they did. Uh, based on Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai. Is this um, a Hollywood movie? Yes. And they called the protagonist Homeworld... Akira and its inhabitants, the Akira. That's a nice homage. They they did an Italian sword and sandal movie called Seven Magnificent Gladiators. There's a video game called Seven Samurai 20XX. A steampunk anime called Samurai 7. A Bug's Life. They said plot... I don't know. This says plot elements of Seven Samurai are used in Rogue One. The Clone Wars episode Bounty Hunters. And the Mandalorian episode sanctuary i saw rogue one the thing about that movie is that like whatever the intention was that got lost halfway and they like ended up with a different movie so they might have intended for it to be closer to seven samurai and then we ended up with just like yeah it's about this girl who falls in with the rebels and then we spend 20 30 minutes like watching that alien suck that guy's brain out but then like we never he's fine right (laughs) Like, what a stupid movie. It's okay. Uh, This says that it influenced movies like Saving Private Ryan, Dirty Dozen, Star Wars, Savage 7, 13th Warrior, The Expendables, Avengers. That is a stretch. Three Amigos. If you're just like, let's get a group of fighters together, then sure, Avengers was inspired by Seven Samurai. But that's what I'm saying. Like, it invented all these tropes that are just, like, so common now. But I'm saying... It, there's more to the story than those tropes and that there's really like specific instances in which throughout history we can have this story but it'd be interesting in the different context within which the story fits not just something where it's like let's get seven guys together like that's not quite exactly it so you remember um Shole? it's an indian movie that talked about it in that documentary we watched but apparently that was also inspired by Seven Samurai. And oh, then well, I'm intrigued then. <clears throat> all these all these other random things like Zack Snyder is saying that the Justice League is Bruce Wayne putting the Seven Samurai together. It, again, I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna buy that. <laughs> You're saying like the specific let's get seven guys together and defend a village thing. Like, that's, that's the only thing that you count as doing Seven Samurai. No, I'm saying that is not doing Seven Samurai. That there's more context to it. 
and that it's specifically the fact that there's this distrust, this fundamental distrust between the villagers and the people that they are asking for help. So the people they are asking for help can't be literal superheroes. They have to be people who also represent the bandits in some way, you know, who also represent the very threat that the villagers are trying to defend themselves from. That is so important to the story. And that's why it's bullshit for Zack Snyder to say that. Well, isn't that a big theme in, like, any superhero story It goes on long enough and then people start being like, well, the superheroes are the same as the supervillains? I think that's, like, that's... an idea that the current era yeah. of well, superhero storytelling is very into. But no, I don't think that's an inevitability. I'm not saying it's an inevitability. I'm saying that that's a very common, like, theme. So... Well, did you have... Any thoughts on the settings I presented, or would you think that there's another setting? Well, you said India, and I'm just saying it seems like that's already been done, even though we haven't seen the movie. Maybe it's a good movie. We should check it out. It might be. Anyway, no, I didn't have any other further thoughts. Uh, I mean, should we watch this Justice League thing? We've seen it. Yeah, we have seen it. We've seen both versions of that, too. (laughs) We have seen both versions of it. What a waste of... Six or seven hours, or however long that took. I mean, we enjoyed it. Remember when Aquaman was sitting on the truth lasso? <sighs> sort of. <laughs> All right. Well, these movies are great, and it was really fun to rewatch them, David. Classic movies. And I do want to put together a super cut of Yul Brenner being dope, just saying cool things. That's how we should end it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening to Seven Samurai slash Magnificent Seven, the 1960 version. Uh, I've been David and Claire. Thank you again.